Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper. In this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we discuss novel clinical phenotypes in sepsis. Um, so before we get started, uh, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Christopher Seymour, uh, and I'm an associate professor in critical care and emergency medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and UPMC. Great. An absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast today, Chris. Um, and uh, we're really excited to talk about your recent uh, JAMA publication um, in May of this year entitled The Der- Derivation, Validation, and Potential Treatment Implications of Novel Clinical Phenotypes for Sepsis. So um, maybe you could tell us why you performed this study? Absolutely. Uh, and so thanks for the opportunity to join. Well, as, a, as an intensivist in a medical ICU, um, I take care of sepsis patients every day, as I'm sure many of uh, my colleagues do. And there's been large epidemiology studies showing that sepsis remains a significant burden for patients in healthcare systems, and almost one in five patients don't survive. We were motivated here at UPMC and Pitt by the findings of the process trial, uh, which was conducted out of the Christmas Center, and other large randomized controlled trials, which have been neutral. Without any new uh, therapeutics to offer these patients, we started to ask ourselves why. Is it that we're not choosing the right targets or the right molecular targets? Are we not choosing the right patients uh, to include in our clinical trials? There's been some really interesting preliminary work by our colleagues uh, across the globe looking at how uh, sepsis is heterogeneous and may not actually be all the same. On top of that, we were noticing that our clinical practice guidelines, if not our state and federal mandates in the United States, are sort of recommending a one-size-fits-all treatment bundle for sepsis. Putting those two things together, the fact that sepsis is heterogeneous and that we're treating these patients largely the same, we were motivated to look for different subsets or groups of septic patients that might uh, be suitable for different treatments, very similar to the decades of work that's been going on in oncology, rheumatology, and psychiatry. So how did you perform your study, and how does it differ from prior studies on the same topic? Sure. So the primary objective of the Seneca Project, which was funded by the National Institute of Health and NIGMS, was to identify subsets or subclasses of sepsis. And we termed these phenotypes because we sought out patients that shared different clinical characteristics. These were all within a group or larger population of patients with sepsis 3. And we sought to identify these phenotypes of sepsis on arrival in the emergency department with electronic health record data. We used a large generalizable cohort at UPMC in order to derive the phenotypes. And then we had many next steps. First, we wanted to see whether those phenotypes were reproducible in new electronic health record data, whether we could validate or reproduce those in other cohorts, such as the GenEMS cohort, another NIGMS-funded study uh, of pneumonia patients. And then we sought out other trial databases that may have detailed inflammatory biomarker measurements as well as um, tested treatments in which we could look at both the profile of biomarkers across the phenotypes and whether those phenotypes had any differential treatment effects inside the randomized trials. So this study differed from prior work on sepsis phenotypes or ARDS phenotypes in many ways. 
The first was that we used cohort data to try to derive these groups. Others in the past have used clinical trial data as the starting point. Of course, these are narrowly selected populations specific for that trial, and groups derived from trial data may not be generalizable. So we started with EHR cohorts that will look like all the patients that, that I see in my ICU and that you may you see in your ICUs. The second step was to use just electronic health record data. Other work has used transcriptomic profiles uh, or have used uh, other omic uh, approaches, molecular approaches to subset sepsis. Although there may be novel mechanistic insights that come from these studies, uh, these are not tests that are routinely available to clinicians at the bedside in order to subset their patients. A third difference was that we used a very large sample size. Most studies to date that have looked at sepsis phenotypes have studied only a few hundred patients. The multiple EHR cohorts at UPMC were more than 60,000 patients, and the randomized trial includes thousands more patients from across the globe from many different centers. Uh, finally, we conducted many, many sensitivity analyses. You know, when trying to identify phenotypes or subsets of sepsis, there are a lot of different statistical methods one could use. It's sort of like I might like to drive a Ford truck, uh, but another researcher or another institution might like a Chevrolet and someone else might like a Dodge. And we, we are going to get to the same or relatively same place, but we may feel passionately about the method or the, the type of car we drive. And so as part of this study, which spanned almost four years of work, multiple different clustering of statistical algorithms were used in many different approaches to missing data in order to reassure those folks uh, who might feel differently about the methods. Uh, in our case, we used consensus k-clustering, which was a partitioning method, uh, but we also applied uh, latent class analysis and other methods that the readers uh, may be more familiar with. These all generally showed the same results in the same groupings. That's a really great overview of your study. So what were your primary findings? Okay. So in our derivation cohort of about 20,000 patients with sepsis 3 on arrival to the emergency department, we identified four groups, which we termed alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. These were derived using unsupervised clustering, a consensus k-partitioning method, in which only the clinical characteristics on arrival were used. We found that the alpha group was less sick and less likely to require vasopressors and had the lowest mortality. Interestingly, patients in the beta group uh, tended to have more renal dysfunction, were of older age, and had more comorbidity. The gamma patients tended to have a more of an inflammatory profile and pulmonary dysfunction with lower saturation and elevated respiratory rates. And finally, the most interesting group, the delta phenotype, was the most sick with the most organ dysfunction, primarily liver and hematologic dysfunction. Almost one in three patients in the delta group did not survive hospitalization. When we went to look at reproducibility of these groups in newer EHR data, uh, we found similar, uh, similar groups. We evaluated patients in the Genoms cohort study, which identified sepsis using sepsis 2 and was primarily pneumonia patients. In Genoms, the frequency of the phenotypes were different, but the clinical characteristics remained the same. We went on further to then look at the clinical trials, and we studied the PROCESS trial, um, 
the ACCESS trial, which tested Aritarin, uh, an anti-PL4 uh, molecule uh, that was targeting the inflammatory response, and uh, the um, Prowess trial, which tested uh, activated protein C. In these trials, the first finding was that the phenotypes were reproducible even in these clinical trials that identified different types of sepsis patients at different times in their care. We found that the clinical characteristics of those RCT patients were the same, and then when we looked at the inflammatory biomarkers measured at baseline in the trials, we found really interesting things. First, really, was the delta group that had the marked change compared to the alpha. And so what we saw was that endothelial uh, markers, um, uh, markers of coagulation abnormality and, and inflammation, particularly IL-6, uh, and IL-10 were different and higher in the gamma and delta groups compared to the alpha or the beta. Then we moved on to the final phase of the study, and that was to try to understand whether the treatments in these randomized trials uh, were any different across these phenotypes. Now, there are different methods to accomplish this goal, but we really um, first uh, we did, well, we approached this in two ways. And the first way was to look uh, for an interaction uh, a statistically significant interaction by the treatment versus the phenotype. And in almost all of the trials, this was not present, meaning the phenotypes were there, but for example, whether oritoran was given to the delta patients or the beta patients, there was no real difference in the outcome. Now, interestingly, in the process trial, we did see differences where in particular when the Delta patients received early goal-directed therapy, they had a different outcome, a worse outcome than when patients received usual care, and that interaction term was significant. Now, when looking at post-hoc interactions, we're often underpowered to find these differential treatment effects. And so the final step in the study was to conduct a Monte Carlo simulation. And in this simulation, we asked the question, what happens if the clinical trial, perhaps the process trial, just happened to enroll more delta patients than alpha patients. And so we started off with the base case where we simulated 10,000 times the observed trial data. And we found, as, as process did, of course, that almost eight to nine times out of 10, that was neutral. But interestingly, in simulation, when delta patients made up almost half of the population of the trial, process would have concluded for harm and that EGDT would have been significantly, statistically significant harm um, overall. Now, the flip side of this is that when alpha patients or the lower acuity patients, if they had been enrolled and made up the majority of the patients in process, there may actually have been a benefit from early goal-directed therapy. Now, we don't really know what the truth is here. But the most important conclusion from all of the simulations are that these clinical trial results are sensitive to the frequency of the phenotypes and that we need to consider these subclasses and these groupings when designing trials in the future. So that's rather impressive findings given the fact that you, as you stated, you look for reproducibility of your findings and consistency. So overall, how do you interpret these findings and what do you think are the major limitations? Sure. Well, we think this is um, a great <laughs> first step towards unpacking heterogeneity in sepsis. Now, there are a lot of colleagues and investigators around the world who are thinking about this as well, um, but our trial was really focused on arrival. This is the moment when clinicians are first seeing patients, when they may decide to do 
bundled care differently. They may decide to enroll these patients in different trials. And this is the clinical moment at which those decisions could be made differently in the future. We feel that by describing these groups using electronic health record data, there is an opportunity to incorporate them in real time in care. Now, there's a lot more to be learned. We only used clinical data. And of course, many would say, how sepsis is parsed apart could very well be informed by comorbidity patterns, the pathogen that's affecting the patient, maybe uh, more detailed information about the organs and the threat to the organs, uh, certainly um, more molecular or biomarker measurements that would be available in the future were not included in our models. We merely used them as a readout to understand whether these phenotypes were different. I envision, and so does our group, that future phenotyping of sepsis, and as we get closer to the biologic truth, will incorporate data of many types, clinical data, molecular data, maybe even um, uh, just protein biomarker data, perhaps microbiome, pathogen, all of these together integrated uh, to best subset sepsis into clinically relevant and therapeutically relevant groups. So as with any clinical data set that uses electronic health records, there is a concern about missing data. Uh, and so uh, not all the parameters uh, were measured in all patients, and not all patients, for example, may have had a lactate measured. Uh, we approached this using multiple imputation, uh, which is a standard regression approach uh, to inform on missing values. Uh, this may not be uh, the best approach, but it certainly is uh, a pragmatic one, uh, and we look forward to using um, uh, other models in the future, like latent class, that can handle uh, missingness as part of the modeling structure. Uh, another limitation is that we were, we were bounded by uh, the variables measured by the clinicians. Uh, so some have said, well, these groupings make sense, but how come, um, for example, uh, lymphocyte count wasn't part of your model? Or how come um, certain microbiologic tests uh, weren't part of your, your, your clustering model? And in a way, these models, although they used unsupervised clustering techniques, were in fact supervised in that we, we had to choose variables measured by the clinicians, and we had to make advanced decisions about how these variables were parameterized or what their distributions were. I think future approaches uh, that cast a broader net about different data domains uh, may refine and change these groups for the future. So you did use RCT data, um, but obviously it was still post hoc or retrospective analysis. So do you think your findings uh, imply causality, or do we obviously need more studies to either reproduce this or to do uh, prospective studies where we stratify by uh, these different phenotypes? Yes. So uh, we would never infer causality from these post hoc secondary analyses. It's, it's enticing or if not even tantalizing to think that there's a subset of patients identified using machine learning uh, that had a differential treatment of response. And remember, in the appendix of the process trial, most of the a priori secondary and subgroup analyses were all neutral, even those stratified by lactate or illness severity. So there's something perhaps different about these Delta patients that we uncovered with these um, uh, uh, machine learning techniques, different from single variable uh, subgroups. But all that said, there is no causal inference that we can attribute to these uh, post hoc analyses. 
And we would envision uh, phenotypes like these that could be uh, identified in real time or future versions of these phenotypes embedded in the electronic health record and then therefore included in future sepsis trials that enroll in the emergency department. Gotcha. So how do you think your study advances our understanding of sepsis, and how do you think it's going to influence our clinical practice? Sure. So at this moment, sepsis is defined by sepsis-3, uh, a life-threatening uh, emergency where the body's response to infection injures its own tissues and organs. Uh, but most practitioners that I speak to uh, would, would suggest that not all septic patients are the same um, and that this broad umbrella encompasses the elder uh, with an obstructing ureteral stone and sepsis as well as uh, the younger patient without comorbidity who's dying from influenza pneumonia. And our treatments for these patients are quite different. We would hope that by describing and showing the importance of these clinical phenotypes, uh, that future work is directed at understanding heterogeneity and its impact on treatment so that we can move from a sort of one-size-fits-all approach to sepsis uh, to better individualizing care. So there has been this debate uh, amongst clinicians, as you've alluded to, uh, and it may be summarized as, you know, the so-called splitters versus the lumpers. The lumpers feel that there's a sepsis syndrome, one-size-fits-all, there's a protocol that all patients need to receive, and that's kind of uh, what's resulted in um, the mandate for sepsis care in the United States. And your work would suggest more of a splitting phenomenon where, you know, we understand that there's different phenotypes of septic patients, and maybe these patients need individualized care or at least slightly different care. How do you think your study adds to that uh, discussion and whether or not uh, certain mandates or uh, protocols need to be revised? Yeah, so um, certainly we believe that there are core elements to care um, that matter for patients who are quite sick. And one of those may be uh, how fast we administer uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics to those high-risk patients. But interestingly, there have been a number of signals inside uh, perhaps our New England paper about timed antibiotics or work by Vinnie Liu showing that these associations are strongest among sickest patients. You know, it may be the case uh, that we need to get deliver that, uh, you know, peptazo to a sick patient with a certain type or certain phenotype uh, much faster uh, than we need to for a different patient, perhaps an alpha phenotype. Um, I would anticipate that our future care bundles and mandates um, provide uh, sort of more targeted treatment recommendations that are informed by some of these models. Now, it may not be alpha, beta, gamma, delta in the future, uh, but we do anticipate that many of the, the sort of recommendations for care that are in our clinical practice guidelines can and will be tested against these phenotypes to see whether they, quote, matter or matter in such a timely fashion. So um, another interesting aspect of your paper was the fact that you determined these discriminant uh, markers. And in figure two, um, if one were to summarize it, uh, a clinician should look at comorbid illnesses, do a complete metabolic panel, including albumin and bicarb and liver function tests or liver tests, uh, troponin and lactate and a CRP. And if one had a panel of all those uh, lab tests as well as the comorbid illnesses, it appears that you could easily discriminate um, between the alpha, beta, gamma, and delta um, and determine what 
your patient's prognosis would be and potentially uh, what therapies you could initiate. Uh, would you say that's a finding of your paper or, or, or how, how strongly would you recommend clinicians follow that approach? Yeah, so at this moment, as a, as, and as a clinician myself, I don't necessarily change my treatment based upon an anticipated phenotype of, of sepsis, um, meaning these findings are not immediately applicable to our, all of our patients at the bedside. I think we can make some assumptions that a patient arriving who's high risk on vasopressors with coagulation abnormalities, liver dysfunction, and shock, uh, that might be a delta phenotype, that their outcome um, with standard care is worse than a patient who might look more like an alpha patient. But we wouldn't recommend any new phenotype-directed treatment now. There are future studies and trials ahead uh, which will better define uh, how to use these groups. I don't know that looking at figure two and saying, well, SED rate was different for gamma, and so we need to measure an ESR in all patients is the right conclusion either. Um, we used data that was available. If it was missing, we imputed for those missing values. Um, and we would expect, you know, clinicians to, to order tests independently, as they did before we conducted our trial. Uh, and then the electronic health record could use those data in embedded models to give probabilities of patients being as part of these phenotypes. That's one future direction. Great, so definitely uh, very promising data, but uh, the clinicians probably just hold up until confirmatory or more prospective studies are done. Um, so in table two, um, you mentioned that the uh, the cohorts used the sepsis three definition for sepsis, whereas in the randomized trials, they used the sepsis two definition, which is basically SIRS plus um, uh, a presumed or known source of infection. Um, some people who would look at that data would say, well, uh, are we comparing apples with apples? Uh, what would your response to that be? Right. Well, there's been a long discussion for almost three years now about what sepsis is and how we as a field interpret uh, patients with sepsis 3 as compared to sepsis 2. And, of course, many um, uh, interest groups, stakeholders have used different definitions or criteria as part of either their guidelines or mandates. Um, that's not a debate that we'll solve on this um, discussion, but what we sought to do as part of Seneca was to embrace that and say, let's look at how these phenotypes uh, play out uh, when using sepsis defined in many different ways. Um, so we use the contemporary version of sepsis the contemporary definition, sepsis 3, to start in the electronic health record data. Genoms used sepsis 2, but if you think about access, they used sepsis 2 required three SERS criteria as well as an elevated Apache 2 score. So uh, the fact that these phenotypes and these patterns are present across multiple studies using multiple different definitions of sepsis that spanned almost a decade, we think that increases the generalizability of the groups um, and we really love the fact that some of these trials had apples and some of them maybe had oranges and some of them maybe had a different related type of fruit, uh, to use your analogy. Great. That's a great response. Um, so how do you think um, future studies on this topic uh, should be designed and what lessons have you learned um, uh, from this really impressive study that you've done uh, or that your group from uh, Pittsburgh has done? Sure. Well, that's three parts of that question. I think for lessons learned, um, and this is the case probably for many um, 
research organizations is that none of this, of course, is done uh, by oneself. Uh, and so this was a, a project uh, funded by um, an early career merit investigator research award called AMIRA from NIGMS. And although that was awarded uh, to myself as the PI, of course, it was a team of, as you might have seen on the author list, almost 20 people that contributed to this science. Um, and that includes um, you know, biostatisticians and machine learners and project managers, um, and as well as mentors. Uh, and so uh, the sort of, it may sound cliche, but this is sort of our version of team science from CRISMA at, at the University of Pittsburgh, and we're, we're very proud of sort of the collaboration. Um, at the same time, I think this shows uh, the usefulness of many data sets uh, at, uh, gathered together uh, in, in sort of pursuit of a larger goal. So I think prior work has, has had some visibility uh, about sets of phenotyping, uh, but they've mainly been single center studies or single project studies. Um, we think this paper gained much more traction and visibility with high-profile journals, in part because it included six studies, three randomized trials, large cohort data, and the reproducibility of the phenotypes across those uh, different trials um, I, we think really added strength uh, to the project. So that certainly is one lesson. Um, and, uh, and then finally, I, I think there is a, a lot to be said with um, sometimes uh, differing views on analytic methods. Uh, so we can often approach a project having in our minds an, an a priori uh, statistical analysis plan and say, this is the model I'm going to use for this project. Uh, but over the course of the four years that we conducted Seneca, um, we've had multiple biostatisticians statisticians involved, some rotated in, some rotated out. They've brought different expertise and different modeling ideas to the project. And we sort of had to learn to be open to different, perhaps, clustering models or uh, sensitivity analyses, um, uh, and to do so uh, uh, sort of uh, <laughs> without uh, being too wedded to our initial approach. And in the end, again, uh, sort of the consistency of the results across all of those different methods added strength to the findings. Um, and so we think that was uh, another lesson learned as well. well. I just want to compliment uh, your team for an absolutely outstanding project. As we draw to the end of the podcast, I just want to see if there's anything that uh, we didn't cover in this podcast that you thought our audience um, in ATS would uh, would really like to know. Well, I think you've asked um, some really insightful questions about the project. We're certainly proud of the science. Um, wh what we hope is that work like this continues uh, to advance the visibility of sepsis as a major public health problem, um, that our funders continue to consider uh, science to try to better understand the biology and heterogeneity in sepsis as a priority. Um, and we hope that ultimately uh, this will lead to new therapies that clinicians at the bedside can use uh, instead of sort of approaching everything uh, with a sort of uh, single one-size-fits-all Band-Aid uh, that just might not be right uh, for all patients with sepsis. Well, thank you very much, uh, Chris. I really appreciate you being on the ATS Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. We wish you and your team all the best, and we're looking forward to your future work. You take care. Thanks so much. Yep, thank you. A big thank you to Dr. Seymour, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.